In our last episode, each defendant on trial for the murder of Ethel Price was found guilty and sentenced to life imprisonment. Arlie O. Boswell, along with many other prominent officials, was convicted of conspiring with gangsters to violate the Volstead Act and was imprisoned. Admissions from members of the Berger gang revealed that Berger himself was responsible for the destruction of Shady Rest. A Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Chapter 33, Part 2 Inured as he was to the death of a friend, the eavesdropping gangster could not bring himself to accept the fate of Mrs. George, who, as far as he knew, had detached herself from the darker side of her husband's life. While it is doubtful that Lena George had never visited the cabin prior to the night of her death, as reported in the Daily Register, it may very well be that the two were estranged and contemplating divorce, as the newspaper indicated. When it became safe to do so, the man crawled out from under the car and drove to West Frankfurt, there to be tortured by the knowledge of what was to come. Unwilling to play the hero, he was plagued with a sense of utter helplessness. But what could I do? He recalled more than a half century later, adding, After all, I had one foot in the grave myself. So he did nothing until it was too late. That night, something, perhaps some twinge of heroism, or perhaps only morbid curiosity, drew him back to Williamson County. While checking his car at a filling station on the outskirts of Marion, he saw two familiar automobiles go past. One was Burger's. The other was Newman's. Although it continued to give him trouble, he managed to get the car started and drove east. When he pulled into the half-moon driveway in front of the barbecue stand, he saw men down at the cabin scurrying around like a bunch of bugs. Thinking back, he felt he must have arrived just after the killings, but before the explosions and fire. By morning, Williamson County's most notorious roadhouse would be in ruins, and in those ruins would be found four charred bodies. However, morning was a world away for the one who watched from the drive, and even then, one of the cars was coming his way. He had been seen. He turned east at the hard road and drove hard, soon nearing the curve just west of Shady Rest, where he turned left onto the gravel road that joins Route 45 at Stonefort. Needless to say, Dawn came as a particular gift to him later that morning in his West Frankfurt apartment. Having driven his jalopy into an orchestrated nightmare, he had peered into the abyss that is the human heart at its worst, and had fled, finally losing the headlights behind him. For the moment, danger had passed, but one foot still remained in the grave. Sleep being impossible, he thought back, at first, only a Saline County coal miner whose habit it was to stop by Burger's Joint in Ledford, he had watched the friendly bootlegger evolve into a gang leader with a will of steel. This hardening of character he blamed on Burger's partnership with the Sheltons, that clever threesome with Florida connections. Meanwhile, at the urging of fellow miner Steve George, 
he hooked up with the Burger Gang, serving both as Burger's bodyguard and collector for his whorehouses and slot machines. For some reason, perhaps only his friendship with George, he soon began to realize that his boss no longer trusted him, and he began to fear for his life. Once while driving Burger to Dowell for a rendezvous with a lady friend, he managed to have a sawed-off shotgun draped across his lap. One finger was not quite on the trigger, nor were the twin barrels quite pointed at the gang leader's midsection, but the message was clear. Why not drive with both hands? urged Berger, his eyes glued to the gun. No, came the reply. I drive better this way. A wiser man would have quit the gang at that point, being careful to put half a continent between himself and those who, mistakenly or otherwise, doubted his loyalty. Instead, this man found himself in West Frankfurt, exhausted and badly shaken. There was a knock on his door later that day. Although Connie Ritter seemed friendly enough, he asked too many questions about the night before. Connie, he said at last, All I saw was some Ku Klux Klansmen pouring gasoline. That's all. Far from satisfied with his answer, Ritter suggested that they take a drive to talk over a few things. No. I can read what's on your mind. There was another onlooker that night, a man who in days or weeks following would be interviewed by a reporter from the Marion Evening Post. Although proof is missing, it is suspected that this man was Jack Cruz, who was accused by Steve George of spying, and whom George threatened to kill, according to Lori Price. Using the information from other sources as well as that of this eyewitness, the reporter was able to present a convincing account of the unfolding tragedy. The careful reader will notice that the following account mentions the gangsters arriving at Shady Rest in one car. The version given earlier had two cars arriving at the scene, Burgers and Newman's. That point aside, the two accounts dovetail very well. Burger, Ritter, and Newman arrived around 11 o'clock. While the drunken Ritter waited in the car, Newman and Burger got out. They were armed. The stranger, meanwhile, had either slipped out of the cabin after the car pulled in or just after the shooting began. Whenever and however his exit, he watched as death unfurled her tapestry. First to fall was Steve George, who was shot down by Newman. Elmo Thomason was shot next, as he cowered by the east wall. Mrs. George, who had been lured to the cabin that afternoon and who was knitting when the killers arrived, was shot point-blank. Either Berger or Newman then ordered Bert Owens to take the stick of dynamite that served as a memento of the bungled bombing attempt by the Sheltons and blow up the power plant. Having obliged in this, providing the jar noticed by Lori Price as he drank his coffee some miles away, Owens started back, only to be shot down 60 feet away from the cabin's front porch. His body was thrown through the front door of the East Room. Mercy was shown to frail Clarence Roan, who lay drunk in a corner of the West Room. He was escorted to the car. Empty of weapons, guns from the place had been taken to Harrisburg earlier that afternoon, and littered with bodies, Berger's masterpiece of revelry was doused with gasoline and set afire. While driving first toward Harrisburg, the gangsters changed their minds, turned around, and drove back toward Marion and Points West. Berger, so the account goes, spent the night at Dowell in the arms of his lady friend, while Newman and Ritter drove on to Belleville. 
On Sunday afternoon, the Newmans, Ritter, Ollie Potts, and Clarence Roan returned to inspect the ruins and to shake their heads for the benefit of sightseers. Inspecting the damage earlier in the day, Charlie Berger had sworn vengeance on the Sheltons for doing such a deed. Several months later, in a restaurant in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, a man struck up a conversation with a woman from Hardin County, Illinois. Southern Illinois, he said enthusiastically. That's what Charlie Berger's gang was. Clearly, he was eager for news of the area and the gang. The man's name, she was surprised to learn from the proprietor, was Connie Ritter. She was even more surprised to learn that the fugitive was well-known along the coast. Too well-known, as it turned out, because on October 18, 1929, the once dapper gangster was captured in nearby Gulfport, Mississippi. In his nearly two and a half years on the run, Ritter had seen much of the South. Once he had barely eluded authorities when they raided a nightclub in San Antonio, Texas. Now it was over. After pleading guilty before Judge Miller at Benton, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. The term was to be served at Menard, where so many of his former friends were in residence. Chapter 34 If It Hadn't Been Most of the gang were to survive their years in prison, beginning in 1941 with the release of Euro Gowan and ending with the departure of Riley Simmons in September 1953, they one by one stepped out of confinement into obscurity. However, for the one who had joined the gang with a shrug of his shoulders and a why-not grin, fate was to exact the last drop of retribution. On January 4th, 1948, Connie Ritter died at Menard. Less than three months earlier, Carl Shelton had fallen before enemy bullets while driving a jeep on a country road in Wayne County. Mortally wounded, he staggered to a ditch, where he died after firing his 44 several times at those who had fired a machine gun, a rifle, and a revolver from a car that was half-hidden by underbrush. Watching it all, first from a truck, then from a ditch, were his nephew, Little Earl Shelton, and Ray Walker, a Shelton ally for 20 years. It was their testimony that revealed Charles Blackie Harris as the prime suspect in the killing. Harris, himself a former Shelton gangster, now the unofficial leader of a group of local farmers who resented the Shelton efforts to try to strong-arm them into paying a toll on the grain they took to market, was a former inmate of Leavenworth. His underworld connections included Frank Buster Wartman, a one-time Shelton gangster and alumnus of Leavenworth, who in 1947 was the most powerful racket figure in and around East St. Louis. Wartman had ties with the Syndicate in Chicago. The Syndicate was deeply interested in the Shelton's Peoria-based gambling empire, and in its swath of territory extending from Peoria to fabled Cairo at the southern tip of Illinois. Unlike his rival, Berger, Carl Shelton left this planet a wealthy man, having raked in millions from gambling in East St. Louis before he was chased out of that city and out of St. Clair County by Sheriff Jerome Muni. Hardly missing a beat, he moved the operation north to Peoria, where the political climate was more hospitable. The take was from slot machines and jukeboxes, from a cut in the nightly hall of casinos in downtown Peoria, and from local officials up and down the state, who profited from such activities. 
Carl, careful to keep the circle complete, doled out a percentage of the profit to other, more powerful officials in Springfield. It was a well-oiled operation, one worthy of the attention of big city gangsters. After the mob's proposal of a partnership was rejected, underworld rumor had it that sizable bounties were placed on the heads of Carl and Bernie Shelton. On July 26, 1948, Bernie was killed by an unknown assailant outside his tavern in Peoria. Another brother, Roy, was ambushed and killed on June 7, 1950, while driving a tractor on his Wayne County farm. Earl, number three, the one Art Newman and Freddie Wooten had such a good time trying to kill back in the good old days, moved to Florida in the early 1950s, along with most of his family after an attempt was made on his life. He was shrewder than his brothers were. He had quit the rackets in the late 1930s after serving a short prison term in Atlanta on a liquor violation, and had returned to Illinois, where he became a successful farmer. In Florida, he was even more successful when his real estate investments paid off handsomely. One day in the early 1950s, Jesse Kramer was having lunch at the Dinner Bell Cafe in West Frankfurt, when in walked Harry Thomason. He had been released on January 23, 1951, and two fairly rough-looking fellows. Not liking the looks of the strangers, Kramer slipped away as soon as possible. About a year or so later, Thomason was killed in an automobile accident. A very difficult quarter of a century brought some changes to the former number two man of the Burger Gang. One story has it that Art Newman even kept a cat in his cell to sample his food lest some of it be poisoned. A pariah among former gang members because of his penchant for spilling his guts to save his own hide, Newman was finally moved to Stateville Penitentiary in Joliet. But his reputation followed him, and the death threats continued. He became interested in horticulture and was made chief attendant of the prison's flower beds. At the time of his release in 1953, the former gangster said he intended to raise flowers commercially in California. In 1979, he was living in Arizona. Newman's legacy lives on in Illinois. Despite the interval of a half century, Arlie O. Boswell had not forgotten or forgiven. I don't think anybody ever heard me make the statement that I would kill him. But if that guy Newman were to walk in this door right now, one or the other of us would be killed. Concerning his own role in the Burger era, the elderly Boswell still clung to the position that he was a fearless, often shot at young prosecutor, whose enemies included not only gangsters like Newman, but also important political figures, such as Congresswoman Ruth Hannah McCormick and Mabel Walker Wilbrandt, the Assistant Attorney General in charge of Prohibition Enforcement. Another enemy was Orrin Coleman, a one-time sheriff of Williamson County. At times, Boswell's own candor was as damaging as the gangster's bullets or the politician's outrage. Remarks he made to that crack reporter John Rogers to the effect that prohibition was unenforceable began, he believed, the chain of events that led to his 17 months imprisonment. It was unlucky for him that some of those with whom he served a part in those 17 months were men he had prosecuted in Williamson County. Too well they remembered. Despite having his throat cut in Leavenworth by Blackie Arms and Riley Alabama Simmons, 
like peas in a pod they were, said Charlie Harris, and despite a severe beating there, one that left him with broken jaws and unable to eat anything tougher than soup for a time, Boswell survived this relatively short stay behind bars. Upon his release, he moved to Michigan, and there was admitted to the bar. When he again became an Illinois resident, he was readmitted to the Illinois bar. By this time, he was also an alcoholic. In later years, if he happened to be on a drunk prior to an important case, Boswell would instruct the Saline County Sheriff to lock him up until he sobered up. He usually won the case. After much effort and agony, he finally won his battle against alcoholism, but admitted that one drink would undo what years of abstinence had achieved. White hair, a cane, a friendly smile, and the esteem of the community, Harrisburg, where he had practiced law so many years, cannot erase a controversial past. When asked about questionable aspects of that past, the old lawyer had a tendency to answer with a speech, extolling his virtues and blasting his enemies. The latter a scheming lot, one was assured, but no longer a problem since most were dead. At times, however, his candor was revealing. I've probably been over backwards the last few years to erase an image that I think a lot of people had of me. Because I think a lot of people had the idea that I was a tough guy who would kill you at the drop of a hat. The funny thing is that I don't have to deny anything. My theory of life is you'll find out whether I'm a liar or whether I'm telling you the truth. Anybody I hate is a damn liar. I'll never forgive them for that. They can steal from me and I'll forgive them, but never a liar." As to why Williamson County suffered more than its share of gangsters during his term there as state's attorney, Boswell placed much of the blame on prohibition, and the rest on a man brought to southern Illinois in Williamson County to make prohibition work. If it hadn't been for that damn Glenn Young, he said, bristling at the mention of the name, I don't think anybody would have ever heard of Carl Shelton or Charlie Berger. The best epitaph of Berger's career was left to W.V. Rathbone, the Harrisburg clothier from whom the gangster purchased much of his wardrobe. A small-town merchant with a taste for good literature, Rathbone was no born journalist, easily dashing off phrase after telling phrase. But it was he who covered Berger's hanging for the Daily Register. Part of what he wrote touched the man he and fellow businessmen had, in former days, called friend. As we stood in front of the bare, rough, and unpainted scaffold, a symbol of its tragic purpose, we thought of the first time we had talked with Berger. It was at his home on business of the moment when, happening to remark about a large stein which sat on the mantle over his fireplace, such a stein as was once seen adorning the bars of the more pretentious saloons, he took it down and handed it to me and entered into a long discussion as to its beauty and worth. Painted on its sides in gorgeous colors were Arthur and Guinevere, and while he knew nothing of the gallant Arthurian knights, the bright colors and the little silver knights surmounting the lid, with sword and shield held in brave attitude, appealed to his ideals of beauty. A vain, ignorant boy who never grew up, carrying nothing for money but the excitement of earning it, jacketed in a steel vest and surrounded by enemies of his own making demanding the adulation of the mob and seeking glory in the only way he knew how to gain it, a knight of another sort.